You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. Hey, good morning. Grab a seat. My name is Randall, one of the leaders here. How you guys doing? Good. How was Thanksgiving? Enjoyable. It's a good time with family. All right, let's just jump into this conversation real quick. Um, who ate, and or maybe, maybe you were like, who's, like, who prepares their own turkeys? Like, I'm still in, like, I don't yet, right? So, but I'm looking forward to it. So who just uh, d- either ate or prepared your turkey by just sticking it in the oven and letting it cook that way? Any, any just oven? All right, all right, decent. How, how about uh, anybody try to burn their house down by frying a turkey? Any, any fried turkey people out there? I think this is probably going to be, how about smoked turkey? Raise your hand if you prefer and do smoked turkey. All right. I would guess like that's probably the biggest version of it. I, I, don't, I hope my brother-in-law is not watching this because he, I don't, I'm not a fan. I don't think the smoked turkey blends well with like the gravy and the potatoes. Like it's such a distinct standout flavor. So listen, that's probably going to be the most controversial thing I'm going to say today. We can talk about it later. If you want to fight me over it, that's fine. So anyways, we're going to jump in. Here's the deal. I can't believe this. We only have like three weeks left in First Peter. So we've got today, next week, and then we're going to do something a little bit interesting for our last time in First Peter. So, so join us for that. That'll be the week before the 19th, so it'll all culminate in our joy offering. Um, and... I, as I've been processed, like it took a little bit for the wheels to start turning for me. So I'd say this, like first Peter's a difficult letter to wrap your mind around. Like it's as difficult for me to understand it probably as it is for you to process it, right? It's filled with things that at first glance probably are going to raise kind of our hairs with like cultural insensitivity. Like this doesn't seem to fit who we are as a people now and where we've progressed. And, and, and yet it's wrought through with the gospel. And I would say this, after um, this experience that like globally we've all kind of been walking through, like I think it's been so fitting in so many ways um, for the church to, to dig into this. And it works on multiple levels, not from the persecution angle, right? Like we want to say that again, like we're not saying that us, like Hub City or the church in America is persecuted in ways that the church is persecuted today. There are places and countries that the church is under heavy persecution. So we, so we recognize that. But, but Peter lifts out this other big conversation about, about suffering, right? Now that is a promise that Jesus says to his people. He says, if you love me, the world is simply going to despise you. And so there will be suffering from that. Now, the world, it's people that they're not your enemies, they're fellow image bearers to um, speak gospel to, live gospel out with, and, and, and see God redeem. But so, so, so from that perspective, right? Now, if you've been here the past couple of weeks, like it's probably been a bit, ready for it, this is my, my dad joke, it's been a bit of a suffer fest, right? Meaning like the topic of our conversation has been suffering, and we've got one more today. Peter's not done. He's going to chase that thread to its conclusion today. Um, so it's been poignant. But what I love is, is this. Th- those are circumstances that the church might find itself in, persecution or j- just suffering. Like if you're going to be a human, um, you're, you're probably going to experience some suffering in your life. But what's most important is the principles that Peter pulls out. 
right? It's not the circumstances that Peter's addressing, although sometimes they're universal. It's, it's, the, it's what he's getting to. Like, what are those rhythms? What are those, what is that mindset? What is that transformation that the gospel brings and then how you live that out? So he's encouraged his readers in their circumstance to be a people. And he's encouraging us today, although there's not a one-to-one correlation in those circumstances or the culture that this was written into ours, those, those principles lift out and those become what's important. So he's encouraged the church and his original readers and us today to be people that would be sober-minded, that we would be a people that would be humble, that we would be a people that would lovingly with gentleness and respect share the great hope that we have in the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, that we would be compassionate and kind and a caring people. Church, how, how have we been doing with that? Like, we can take those principles and apply them to the past couple years, and we have to ask that question, like, how have we been doing that? Now, listen, I get it. It is easy to sit in the stadium and, like, critique the church, like that becomes a thing that like I hear often, and, and I think we should. I think those of us that are the church, we, we certainly should have an eye of critique towards the church. We should admonish each other. We should exhort each other towards these principles. Now, listen, you can also go too far with that. Like if all you're doing is critiquing and criticizing the church, like, well, that's a great way to like stiff arm the gospel, right? Because here's the deal. When we talk about church, how are we doing with that? I'm not actually asking for a critique of the evangelical church in America, which certainly we can. I'm just saying like, like, how are you, right? And then we turn it to a critique of the church, and that becomes an easy way to like stiff arm the gospel, like it's adjacent to us, but it's actually not transforming us. So when I ask church, how are we doing with being a people that are sober-minded and walk in humility, and like I'm asking like you, right? Because when we just throw out critiques against the church, which again, some, some, some are, are, are well-made, at some point, if that's all you have, like you're going to just be like, like a person at, at a wedding that's just like heckling the bride, right? So, so ultimately, what, what we want First Peter to do um, is not serve as a critique for the church like abroad, but to enter our hearts and to transform us. And so I can answer like, how have I been doing? Have I been a person that's been sober-minded? Have I been gentle and respectful? Not all the time. Like frustration takes over. And yet we, we have this letter from Peter that, that while we would say, once again, those principles may not be a one-to-one, or I mean, those circumstances aren't. What Peter wants us to hear today is, is are we letting the gospel in? which is going to transform us to be a people that will be sober-minded and gentle and loving and compassionate and respectful. So his pathway through that is to attach our existence to Jesus's existence, right? He's saying church, individuals in the church, like people, community, like there's no separation. Like where Jesus goes, you go, right? He, he says, Jesus is our example. We talked about that, how that is that is that word that he uses for example is, is like we're tracing the footsteps of Jesus. We're walking where Jesus goes. We're following Jesus. And the, the thing that he wants us to most see about Jesus's experience here on earth that was the most profound to him and also the most universal to any human experience is the topic of suffering. So we're going to return to it once again this morning, right? It's been a major theme throughout this book. 
But it really comes into like acute focus here in these last few verses. Peter dives into this topic with like more detail and more passion. Um, he, he gives us here the Christian perspective on suffering. So that's what we're going to look at today. This is a sermon on how to suffer as a Jesus follower. And before I say any more, you might be wondering like, like, why do we talk about this so much? Like, why, like, if you're new to Hub City and you've only been here for the past three or four weeks, you're like, man, these guys are like all about this. That's all they talk about. So if you're new here, like, maybe you've heard us talk about like suffering way more than you're used to. And I just want to tell you why that is. First, it's because our approach to preaching, uh, we take books of the Bible and then we just preach through them verse by verse for the most part. And, and what that means is like, we're, we're actually subject to whatever the Bible says. And the book of 1 Peter says a lot about suffering, and so we're talking a lot about suffering. Secondly, this, through this series, we've talked about suffering because suffering is a reality in life. It's inescapable. It's a reality that every human will experience, and, and you can't buy your way out of it. No amount of power can prevent it. It will visit us all, and I know that to be true. Like, like in so many ways, as I get the privilege and the honor to, to, to shepherd um, this beautiful community, one of the things that I know is that this is a church. Like I'm talking about Hub City. Like we are a people who suffer. We have suffered. And, and I have the honor and the privilege to, to enter into the pain of that suffering and see it, and sit in it, and walk with you through it, and, and I suffer, and we all do, and so it's just this universal experience, so of course we need to talk about it, because it's the thing that's like the most true about our experience as humans. So in today's passage, Peter gives us this Christian perspective on suffering, and he gives the, his, his audience these three exhortations, right? So this is how we should process, and approach, and think about suffering as a people, distinct because we now have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. We are Christ followers. So, so we're going to look closer at each of these things. We'll, we'll jump into that. But let me pray one more time for our morning here, and then we'll jump in. Father, once again, we come humbly before you, and we believe um, what's happening right now is, is, is not a speech. Um, it's not a concert. It's an opportunity for your church, broken and bruised, filled with joy, pursuing what it means to be a people that would be sober-minded and respectful and loving and compassionate, coming together to worship our great King that you and you alone bring that transformation in our hearts through the gospel. And so we want to we come under the authority of your word today. God, would your living and active word change and transform us this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so how should we come to think about suffering and the process of it? The first thing is this, expect and embrace trials as a refining fire. So verse 12 said this, he says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as, as though something strange were happening to you. So, so Peter's reminding us once again that, that suffering is not abnormal for the Christ follower. Suffering is not strange, nor is it something to, at all costs, try to avoid. We expect it. 
we, we embrace it. We've already seen this. A couple weeks ago, back in chapter 3, at the end of chapter 3, Peter's talking about this like beautiful gospel event, how Jesus suffered on the cross, how he was raised from the dead and exalted to the right hand of God. And we're supposed to keep in mind that those two things are intrinsically tied to one another. The suffering of Jesus and his victory are intrinsically tied together. But we don't just hold those two things together. We need to understand their connection. Jesus's victory actually came through his suffering. There was no other way for that victory to happen because he took upon himself the guilt and the condemnation and the shame for all of creation. And he was going to suffer so he could win. So the glory of his resurrection came only through the shame of his cross. Jesus and his gospel show us that while God did not intend suffering, that was not his design, he will use suffering to fulfill his redemptive plan. So, so all of our attempts to avoid suffering, this desire to, to have this utopian existence where everything goes right, what we need to see that is, that, that's not rooted in the human experience as much as that is rooted in God's good design. And so, so any human today that's, that's trying to avoid suffering or sees suffering as, as not desirous, which I understand, it's actually the echoes of Eden, right? It, it's it's this, this, this thing that's rooted in us as God's image bearers to say, like, w- like we, di- we haven't experienced it, but we, what we do know is that when God created all of this, Suffering was not a part of that experience. It also roots us in and anchors us to a hope in the future where there will be a reality where there will be no more pain and no more tears and no more suffering. And so he, but, but today for us, as we live in the in-between of those realities, suffering exists. And what's implied in chapter 3 is that we should not think as suffering as strange, right? And here's, here's what Peter implied at the end of chapter 3 but then he makes abundantly clear here in chapter four. Peter says very simply, do not be surprised. Don't let this like catch you off guard. The opposite of being surprised by something is what? Is to expect something, right? And, and so those two responses, surprise and expectation, they look totally different. Listen, I can't believe I'm gonna confess this on camera because um, my mom's probably watching at home. Now, she knows this, but it's going to bring up all sorts of, like, memories for her. I was a Christmas peeker. Anybody else? Anybody else hunt through their mom's closets to find those? I did all, every year, right? To the point that it got so bad, she got so frustrated that she, like, hid all the gifts throughout the house one time and then lost several of them. It was, like, years later that we're like, what is this? Like, it, it, it was, like, 1988, so what I wanted most was an, an Oakland Raiders starters jacket, and, and I didn't, yeah, I know. I didn't find it until a year later, and I realized I'm actually not a member of the group NWA, so I shouldn't be wearing this Raiders starters jacket. So, so I would peek, and that meant this. I was no longer what when I opened those gifts. I was no longer surprised when I opened those gifts. He said, I was actually expecting it because I knew what it was, right? And so those are two very different reactions. And Peter is saying here, like, don't be surprised when suffering visits you. Actually expect it and then embrace it, okay? So, so he's saying that when those, those things that are difficult, those seasons are, are, are hard that come into your life, don't be surprised by it. But what's really important there in verse 12 is, is why we should not be surprised. 
We see this in how Peter describes suffering. Peter calls suffering this. He says, it's a fiery trial that comes upon you to test you, right? So, so the word in verse 12 for fiery trial is actually this Greek word that simply means burning, right? So English translators add the word trial because that's the context for it. But, but what Peter is saying literally is this, do not be surprised, the burning comes upon you to test you, right? So this is, this is important because it means that the burning, the trial, the suffering, it actually has a purpose. And what's that purpose? Purpose is to, to test you. The, the image here is of a refining fire, right? The, the same idea Peter said all the way back in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, when he said, you have been grieved by various trials, same word, um, for, for, for burning, as in 4.12. And he goes on to say, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, so our faith, Peter's saying, is, is like this precious thing, this precious metal, gold, right, for him. And, and suffering is like that fire that you put that, that gold into and refine it, right? And, and this changes everything. Uh, the other night I was stuck in the, uh, the YouTube algorithm, right? Which I don't know, anybody else do that? Like, I don't know how, like YouTube has taken over for me now and I just like chase all these rabbit holes. So I'm not quite sure how this one popped up because neither of these two things are remotely of my interest. So like Business Insider, right? Business Insider, they put out these like short little videos. I think it's because I watched one earlier that was like, why do Doc Martens cost so much money. So then the next one that popped up was this. It was, why are Japanese chef knives so expensive, right? Which that sounded like a cool thing to get into. So I watched it and it was fascinating, right? So they start these things and they, I don't know if that's actually smelting, but they take that, that, that the process of refining that steel that they're going to use. They actually use two different types of steels in these knives. It's crazy. Some of these things can be as, as like one knife um, made in Japan, especially from the, the um, company that they were featuring, could be up to like $7,000. It can take up to two and a half years to make. The craft itself to learn how to do all of this takes decades to master. It's in the lineage of sword making. So like they used to make katanas, right? So like great, great, great grandpa made katanas and now I make chef knives. But they hold up, they're, they're fascinating. And they, they put it in that fire at first and that heats up that metal ore and then it it, it processes it and it, it, it removes all the impurities from that steel, right? And then at the end, you get this like beautifully constructed and made chef's knife that like one of the images, they had a tomato just sitting on the table and they could cut like this beyond paper thin slice. So these things are like some of the most coveted knives in the world and they become this beautiful work of art. But before they become that beautiful piece of art, like work of art, they get put through like a testing fire and then they get hammered, you know, and then they get sharpened. Like everything that happens to them be before they become this beautiful work of art is painful, right? It's, it's, in some ways, it's, it's suffering. It's, it, in some ways, it feels like abuse, like you're just pounding that metal, but it actually is, is what's strengthening it, right? So, so, so Peter wants us to, to see some of that, right? Like our suffering is like that fire that's going to remove these impurities and it's going to strengthen us. God is at work in us, refining us. And one of the things that he uses is just this commonality, this 
this human suffering. And Peter borrows this idea, right? Where does he get this from? He gets this idea of refining fire from the Old Testament. Places like Psalm 66.10, where the psalmist says, For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. Uh, Zechariah 13.9, God is speaking about his people. That's an important thing to recognize here, too, when, when this is tied into judgment, right? And this suffering and this judgment. And, and Peter's saying, like, God first starts with his house, with his people. Like, we are being judged through our suffering, and we're being refined into something far better than what we were before. Zacharias 13.9 says, and this is speaking about God's people, I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and, and test them as gold is tested. Isaiah 48.10, where God says to his people, behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. So, so based on just the testimony of Scripture alone and what God has done and promised to do for his people, Peter wants us to understand this and what our suffering is about. It's a refining fire for us that God is at work. So you can, you can resist it. You can stiff arm it. You can say, like, I don't want to, at all costs, I want to avoid that suffering. But you're, you're, you're removing, you're, you're keeping at a distance. God's purpose for your life is to make you something other than what you were before you knew him, and he's going to use that, that suffering in our lives. So we also see, as we kind of keep tracking this, if we jump down to, to verse 17, skip ahead a little bit there, Peter gives us this other Old Testament illusion. Um, he, says, he says, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, right? And this is a reference to suffering. He's saying, like, this will come upon you, this judgment. God will judge his people. He will judge his church. Like, we are being judged through our suffering. And, and the household of God here, it's literally, it's the house of God, which in the Old Testament is what? What is the house of God? Well, it started out as a tent, and then it became a temple. And, and, and a promise of God in the Old Testament is that he will, he will purify his temple. He will purify the place that he lives and dwells, right? That's what he's constantly doing. The prophet Malachi said that one day the Lord of hosts, Yahweh, is going to visit his temple. And when he visits his temple, he says this in verse 3, 4, he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord. So the judgment of God, it's here, and it's first and foremost, it's, it's for the place that God lives. So, so this affliction, this fire, it's not to punish us, but it's to purify God's people. It's a refining fire, removing all of these impurities. And so with this Old Testament background, Peter tells us that this refining fire is what's happening now in the midst of our suffering. The house of God, the temple of God, the dwelling place of God is what today? Well, it's us, it's his people, it's the community of saints, it's his bride the church. And, and when suffering is a part of our lives, it does not mean that God is absent. Like, that's an easy conclusion to, to jump to. God only has good for us. He, he only desires good things for us. He's the giver of all good things. And so when bad things are happening to me, that must mean that he's just peaced out and he's not paying attention to me, and, right? But, but that's not what it means, right? It means that he is present. It means that he is active. It means that he is working, that he is paying attention. He's shaping you and he's forming you for his ultimate good and glory. He's making you through suffering into something unique and something 
beautiful and something that will last. One of the most incredible things that came out of watching that piece about those knives being made was the, 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 the gentleman that was kind of talking about the process and how he inherited this from his family. He wanted to be a rock star at some point. He wanted to be a musician. And then the other brother wanted, like all three brothers ended up doing this, right? And they ended up in this business. They've been at it for generations. And he said, I will get knives that have gone through this whole process that like my great grandmother made. And they're brought back, they still exist. They brought back to me and I sharpen them and I put it back into use, right? And so, so God's doing that here in this process. He's making something beautiful and unique in you through your suffering, but he's also making something eternal in you, something that will last. And so um, it's hard to embrace this reality, right? Because when, when, when suffering visits us, I think it's, it's so tempting to, to even like bring accusations against God. Like, God, why is this? Like, those are the moments. Like, why are those the moments when we question our faith the most? Those moments when we experience the deepest suffering are the moments that we seem to be the most distant from God. And it's actually the moments where God's drawing us closest to him, right? That's why we should not be surprised by it. We should expect it, but we should actually then embrace it. Like, don't be shocked by it. Suffering is not strange because God is using that to refine you. And Peter says, as Christ followers, the way to think about suffering is to expect and embrace trials as a refining fire. Second thing is this, rejoice in those trials as a pathway to something far greater, a pathway to glory. Peter makes this clear in verses 13 through 16. But, but there's at least like three questions that come up here in my mind, right? Like how does that connect? How does, how does your worst experience connect to like the most glorified experience, right? And we should, we should wonder like what, what does that mean? So there's some questions that begin to come up. And I want to try to address one, like each of these, um, kind of just head on. It's going to take a little bit of time, but so just like bear with me. Um, let's start back in, in verse 13, right? Because there's this negative exhortation in verse 12, like don't be surprised, but then there's a positive exhortation in verse 13, which is to rejoice. So, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So there's a connection there, right? Peter wants us to go beyond just expecting and embracing suffering, or to actually now rejoice in it, which I don't know how I do well with that. At least, like, sometimes, like, when I'm in it, I'm fighting it, right? I just realize, like, I'm stuck in a big brown paper bag trying to fight my way out of something when I should just, like, let it happen, like, embrace it. Like, what, what, is, what is God doing versus trying to get, get out of it? So we rejoice in it. There's a qualifier to that statement. So insofar as you share in Christ's suffering right? So, so Peter does the same thing in verse 14. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, and then in verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, which is suffering as a Christ follower, suffering with Christ, we, we can see what Peter is saying here, right? He, he's not just talking about suffering, but he's talking about suffering specifically as it relates to those that are Jesus followers. So there's a distinction. Do people that don't follow Jesus suffer? Absolutely but he's addressing the church and he's saying, how do you suffer as someone who's declared themselves to be a follower of Jesus? And the important qualifier leads to maybe like the most important question of all when experiencing suffer, which is this, how do we know whether we're suffering as a Christian or not? So like what constitutes suffering as a Christian? 
So, so we, should, we should feel some tension here, right? And there's two ways to kind of look at this. A couple of like hypothetical examples, right? So, so you're a Jesus follower, and as you're, as you're working for your employer, you know, like they're, they're, they're calling you into to maybe some practices that you would say, like, that's just unethical, that goes against my morals, I can't, like, that violates God's standards, so I can't be a part of what you're going to do, right? And so then you get fired for that, right? So that's suffering, probably because you've drawn a line in the sand around your beliefs and your morals and your ethics, which are informed through the gospel. That's suffering probably because you're a Christian, right? Which doesn't happen a ton here. Like we want to disconnect that. We know there's other stories of persecution and suffering, but, but then there's, but I wanted you to connect like some type of line there. But then there's just this, like you're just a Christian who suffers, right? So, so we've all been suffering through like the clunkiness of this global pandemic, right? So that's a, that's a, that's a commonality that everybody's experiencing. So there's those two different things. You can suffer as a Christian and just suffer the things that happen to everybody. But then there is that targeted, like you're suffering because you're a Christian, right? And, and, and both kinds of sufferings happen to believers, but are they both suffering as Christians? And the answer to that is, yes, they are. So, so does this 1 Peter chapter 4 a, a apply to both of those kind of hypothetical circumstances? Yes, it does, right? Now, to clarify, remember, Peter has persecution of the church in direct view. That was the immediate context and threat for his original audience. These Christians were slandered, they were insulted, they were maligned, they were dismissed from their jobs simply because they were Christians. But, in, but verse 15 is where Peter shows us that the, the real contrast when it comes to different kinds of suffering, right? He says in verse 15, in contrast to suffering as a Christian, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler, right? So, like, do you see that? So, the contrast to Christian suffering is suffering that is, like, retribution for wrongdoing. You can suffer because you made some choices. Now, he gives kind of a list of some things. Murder, thief, evildoer, meddler. I don't know. I don't know how, like, why meddling is that? Like, how does that fit in the list of those things? But all right, so... So those are things that, like, yes, you'll suffer because, because there's consequences to those actions, right? Like, if you murder someone, or you steal someone, or you do evil against someone, or you just meddle in their business, right? If you do those things, and life gets hard for you, Peter seems to be saying, I would, what did you expect? Like, those are the consequences of your actions. So Christian suffering is not retribution for wrongdoing. So back to verse 12. It's suffering that comes upon you simply because you are a follower of Jesus. If you're a Christian and you experience bad things, you're suffering as a Christian. So it's not the type or the cause of your suffering that makes it Christian. That's important to understand. It's the purpose of God at work in your suffering because you're a Christian. Does that make sense? It's not the type or the cause of the suffering. It's the purpose of God at work in your suffering because you're a follower of Jesus. In your suffering, you're sharing now in the sufferings of Christ. And Peter says this, that you should actually rejoice in that. But, but why? Why do we rejoice in suffering? That's question number two. Verse 13 again, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, and so that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So Peter says that our rejoicing in our suffering is for the purpose of our rejoicing and gladness when the glory of Jesus is revealed. Keep in mind, Peter 
anchors his whole letter to the eschatological hope, right? The, the future hope that Jesus is coming back for his church. He's going to usher in his kingdom. He's going to reunite heaven and earth and establish his kingdom of shalom. And so he wants us to see that, that our suffering is then connected to that future reality where there will be no more suffering. And how we rejoice in it is because we have this hope-filled future. He's talking about Jesus' return. He, he mentions this at least four other times in his letter. Jesus is coming back. And Peter says that if we rejoice in our suffering now, then on that future day when we see Jesus, when we're face-to-face with Jesus, we will rejoice and we will be glad, which means there will be more joy to be had. There will be more joy in our future on the other side of our sharing in Christ's sufferings. And it's, it's more joy because in our future, we don't share in his suffering anymore. There's a time stamp on us sharing in Christ's suffering because in our future, we partake in his glory. So Jesus tells us this in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 11, Jesus says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. So rejoice and be glad is is the exact same phrase Peter uses in verse 13. Remember, Peter heard Jesus say this in Matthew 5.11. He was there. He was paying attention to what Jesus was saying. Peter heard this voice from Jesus saying, like, when all of these things happen to you, rejoice and be glad because you have this great hope in my future, right? And so we rejoice in those trials now because we realize we hold cling tightly to the promise of a better future. We also see this, like Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is probably like, probably one of the greatest like chapters in the Bible about our future. Paul says this in in verse 17. He says, and he says this, it's because like in Christ, so he's talking about in Christ, we're children of God. And he says this, we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So do you, do you hear that? Because of our union with Jesus, we now share in his suffering in order that in the future we will share in his glory. And so if we rejoice now, we will rejoice later. But the joy that we experience in the future will be even deeper and greater and constant. It's something that we just can't know right now. I don't even think that if we, I I think if we experienced it against this world, it would be overwhelming, right? I'm I'm also a little equally as embarrassed. I'm about to admit this, but I've I've been on a a weird um, little thread of watching a a animated cartoon show, Um, not made for children at all. It's called Rick and Morty. Anybody see that show? Tune into that. So goofy. It actually asks like very deep existential questions. And there's a scene in there where the character Morty is trying to hang a photo and his grandpa Rick comes alongside him and is like, he's using a level and his grandpa's like, hey, like, you think that's level, right? Like how many of you ever used a level and thought like, maybe this isn't actually level, right? And he's like, if I showed you what true level was, so he creates true level for Morty the grandson to experience. And of course it wrecks him and destroys him. And he's like, there's nothing I could have compared that to. So there's a sense in which like 
we, we hold out for this sense of joy, if we were to experience all the joy that we have in our future, it, it would be so shocking and disorienting to us compared to what else we're experiencing right now. But that's the hope that we hold on to is this brighter and better future where we share in the glory of Christ. And so we rejoice in that. We have to keep that in view. Otherwise, honestly, none of this makes sense. If suffering is all we get as Christians, like if that's all you have as a, as a follower of Jesus, that'd be crazy and, and not something at all to rejoice in. It's our future with Jesus that makes the difference. And that's what our present suffering points to. The trials that we experience today, the suffering of Christ that we share in today, it verifies to us that we are on the path to sharing in his glory. That's what verse 14 is getting at. Look at it for just a minute here, verse 14, right? And make sure like you're holding on to something or someone tight because this is like next level stuff, right? Verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of God or because the spirit of glory and, and of God rests upon you. Now that could be like a cool bumper sticker, right? Hey, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Like that's great. We like to be blessed because of the spirit of glory, but, but we got to pay attention to that because once again, Peter is alluding back to this teaching in Matthew 5, 11, where Peter heard Jesus speak about the paradox of this, that, 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 that you are actually blessed when you're insulted. How many of you feel overly blessed when someone insults you? And you're like, sweet, that was great, right? Like, I love for my deepest insecurities to just be broadcast out to everybody, right? So, so that, that, that's a paradox for us. And again, like, this applies to any kind of trial Christians might face, but not just insults. But every kind of suffering as a Christ follower is actually a blessing because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. So with that specific language in mind, Peter's alluding back to this other Old Testament passage in Isaiah chapter 11, right? Which is this prophecy about God's Messiah. And verse one says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch for from his roots shall bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. So the, the Messiah will have the spirit of the Lord resting upon him. So the spirit of God is going to rest on the Messiah. And that's actually an identifying sign. If you want to know who God's Messiah is, look for the spirit of the Lord to rest upon him. That's how you're going to know who he is, which is why at Jesus's baptism, what do we see? When he comes out of the water and the heavens open up, Matthew tells us that the spirit of God descended upon him like a dove and came to rest on Jesus. It's crazy. Like there's the connection. Jesus is the Messiah. That was that revealing the fulfillment of Isaiah 11.1 1 in Jesus's baptism. Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah because the spirit of God rested upon him. And this is the part that I was like, you got to sit down and, and pay attention. Like, and, and now here, because Peter takes that same like messianic sign and he applies it to who? To us, the church, right? In, in that same spirit that rested upon Jesus, God's Messiah, and proved that he was who he claimed to be, now rests upon the church and proves not that we are the Messiah. Please don't hear me saying that. Some of you might think you are. You're not it proves that we belong to him in our suffering. We belong to him and we belong to each other in our suffering, right? That, that's the blessing. It, it, that's, that's that we are his and we belong to each other and he's given us each other. It's how we know we are his. In verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God 
in that name, suffering for believing in Jesus' name as a follower of Jesus. That's nothing to be ashamed of. We are glorified in this calling. The trials we experience with Jesus are taking us on the path to glory with Jesus, so rejoice. Question three, how does this rejoicing look? It's, it's weird. Again, it's a, it's a paradox, rejoicing and suffering. Like, I'm not sure what you imagine or like what you think about when you think about rejoicing, but chances are we probably have a pretty one-dimensional like understanding of rejoicing, right? Like we probably think party. We think hats and streamers and confetti, and that's not wrong. That's a great way to rejoice. Those things can be a part of rejoicing. They're going to be a part of our rejoicing joy offering. We're going to do all those things, confetti and streamers and hats. It's going to be great, right? There's an exuberance of joy that the Bible calls us to, singing and dancing and laughter. Like, it's a part of biblical joy. Like, we should be the best partiers ever because we rejoice with Christ. But joy is also more than that. And this is where we get into, like, the deeps of it. This is where it's hard, like, the paradox of it. Thanksgiving night, I went out for a walk. I've been doing old man walks, right? My dad's an old man. He's been walking for like the past 20 some years. I'm like, I'm going to start now so that when I'm his age, I can still go out and do these walks. So I got for a walk. Normally I'll put on a podcast. This time I put on an album. Um, so I started walking up and I'm listening to um, an album by Willie Nelson, who I'm not big surprise, like the biggest fan of, right? So why would I be listening to this album, The, the Red Redheaded Stranger? Anybody know this album? Um, it's not my cup of tea. It's not my forte at all but it holds a special place of significance in my heart and my life. This is actually probably only the third time I listened to this album. First time I listened to it, um, myself and a few other, a few other people uh, do this thing once a month, you've heard about it before, where we get together, we listen to an album. And so my friend Brad, um, who passed a couple years ago, this was one of the last selections that he brought to the table was this album by Willie Nelson. So I listened to it there um, in Vinyl Club, and I think my response was, I don't like it. I don't like country. I don't like Willie Nelson. I listened, tried to listen to it again and fell short. Thursday night, um, in fairness, I'm going to say this, I didn't get all the way through. I didn't have it downloaded, so I lost the stream, so I didn't get to listen to the whole album. Um, but I was listening to it, and I was hit, of course, with like a deep sadness, like grief and suffering from experiencing the loss of a dear friend. But then there was so much joy as I process that, because I got to share in something with him that was so valuable to him. And then I, I was just racking my brain, like, man, what was supposed to happen was we were supposed to be 75, sitting on the front porch, drinking a glass of whiskey, listening to this album, right? So there's grief and suffering, but great joy that comes with getting to experience this with him. And so it's just simply, a, it's a paradox. Like, we tread into mystery here, right? We can rejoice in our suffering. And we know this joy exists because Jesus has been there. Do you remember Jesus in the garden at Gethsemane, the night before his crucifixion, the night before he experienced the worst suffering that any human has ever or will ever experience? Jesus on his knees in the garden praying to the Father, my Father, if there's any way that you can get me out of this, please, not, it's not what I, but, but please, not what I want, but I want to do what you want, right? So Jesus was freaking out a little bit here. He's distressed. He's unsettled. And he, he did not want the suffering that was ahead. If there's any other way, 
This was real suffering. And then in the book of Hebrews, the author is speaking about the suffering of Jesus in, in chapter 12, verse 2. For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. So, so somehow in his terrible distress, Jesus had this capacity for joy. Even in the midst of pain, emotional, physical, Jesus could look down the path and say, joy. And when we share in his suffering and we tap into the joy of hope because we're playing the long game there with it. Like we see the future. We see the hope that we have that there will be a time where we share in his glory, right? Which is what we see in verse 19. And this is our last point. The Christian perspective on suffering means this, hope in God as the faithful creator. Verse 19, Peter's conclusion to this passage, he says, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to the faithful creator while doing good. So to suffer according to God's will is simply another way to say, like, suffer as a Christian. And then another way to explain joy in suffering is that we entrust our soul to a faithful creator while doing good, right? That is what Jesus did in the garden before his crucifixion. That's what we're called to do. And I think the way that Peter refers to God here is incredibly important, right? He calls him the faithful creator, which highlights that God is sovereign and he's good, and he's great. And when we remember that God is the good creator of all things, we remember that he's sovereign over everything. All things depend on him, and he is in ultimate control. Then we remember that he is a faithful creator. And when we remember the exercise of his sovereignty is always in line with his promises, God will keep his promise to his people, and his promises are always for our good because he himself is good. So when Peter calls God the faithful creator, he is saying that, that God is good and great, right? Which is something that like feels like almost childish to say. It's something that we all learn in like Sunday school if we grew up in the church, right? Like God is good and he is great and we sing songs about it. But in the midst of suffering, the truth of God's greatness and goodness, sometimes it can seem dim because, because suffering comes on like a storm and it turns us and it twists us and it distorts and disorients our perspective. But we need to be reminded that God is always sovereign. God is always good. He is our faithful creator. And in your suffering, you can trust him with your soul because you can look back to the story of the garden and see that he only created good out of his greatness. And then we anchor ourselves to the future where we only see good out of his greatness, which is what brings us to the table this morning, because at the table each week we come and we remember together that God is both great and good, that God has given us the whole Bible as a testimony to who he is. And it's at the cross, especially where we see his heart on vivid display for his people. In the death and resurrection of Jesus, we see the sovereign goodness and greatness of God. That is the place of our salvation. And this morning, as we eat the bread, as we drink the cup, we give thanks to Jesus, our faithful creator. Let me pray and let's respond.